episode, episode, episode 100. And we are back, part two of episode 100, Rob and Will. In part one, we did a heck of a lot. We heard from so many well-wishers, tons and tons of loyal fans and supporters and listeners who want to get in touch and celebrate 100 episodes with us. We um, paid attention to those people that might have paid some bills. We learned about the history of Marvel Comics, how it was started, how it began, its history in the uh, 1930s, its roots in pulp magazines, timely comics, the birth of Captain America, <clears throat> the time it had to uh, go cap in hand to DC Comics just to keep going, <laughs> <clears throat> and the big successes it had subsequently. We looked behind the scenes at the making of what we're looking at today, the Marvel superheroes, the very first adaptation of any kind of Marvel Comics property from 1966. We learn an awful lot about what went into the photocopying artwork uh, that is apparently legal and fine. Um, you can photocopy Jack Kirby's art, not pay him any more money, make a cartoon and sell it. That is an acceptable practice. We also um, looked... At the context of 1966, who was in the charts, what movies were out, Yeah, Will has added a man for all seasons to his watch list. Mm, um, that's the important bit. <laughs> we've also paid homage, and Will again, to the most important people, the world-class wrecking crew. Keep the lights on. Keep me and Will in socks and bananas. It's Peter J. Bloody hell, socks and Brandon. bananas. What's that about? Just everyday essentials. Peter J, Brandon Schmigilski, Basta Beer, Sam, Bindi, Supi, Jack Davis, Zubair Q, David Fan, and Zach Thomas. Those are the cats in the cradle. Those are the people that keep things humming around here. The hum and, cats. Uh, the hum cats. We can now kick things <laughs> off. Now, the wonderful thing about what we're looking at today, the Marvel superheroes, is that each individual segment has an incredible theme song from the 60s. <laughs> and we're going to use that to intersperse and, 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 and take us through and carry us through um, each of the individual segments. When Captain America throws his mighty shield, all those who chose to oppose his shield must yield. If he's led to a fight and a duel is due, then the red and the white and the blue will come through when Captain America throws his mighty shield. Bloody hell, what a theme tune. <laughs> Man, I just want to go fight a war now. That's what I just, this just really G'd me up to fight a war. Very patriotic, and I love the whole focus that is on his shield and not his strength. It's like, <clears> no, th those yeah. enemies will yield when he uses his mighty shield. It's like, but he's really strong. Surely no, to be, to be fair, as a, as a songwriter, you, you get yield and shield, and you're like, we've got to use that. Oh, it's one of the only things that rhymes with shield, and it works in a fight scenario. How brilliant. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I. I'm ready to renounce my citizenship right now, Will. <laughs> Go and salute old liberty. That's what I'm so, ready to do. Get, grab yourself a hot dog. Give away your rights to socialise <laughs> healthcare. Yeah. <laughs> NHS. <laughs> I'm going to go bankrupt myself just because I sprained my knee. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Come on. Keep it light. <laughs> 
Uh, More than half our audience is over there. We I'm love s- them. I'm sorry. I love you guys. I'm just. I'm just. I ribbing. wish you could go to the doctors. That's what I wish. <laughs> yeah, I wish you could all go to the doctors for you know, uh, free at free at point of service. So anyway. here we go. Um, let's crack on with this episode. Yep. Let's press play on that old VHS, or maybe it's an old reel from the '60s. Who knows? Oh. Captain America in the origin of Captain America. It's the 1940s, and America is at war with the Axis powers. Meanwhile, in Washington, a new chemical is being prepared for use in the war effort. At a seemingly ordinary shop, two generals are led into the shop by an intelligence agent. Inside, they are shown to a secret room upstairs by an old woman. They arrive at a secret lab uh, above the shop, where this old woman removes her face mask, revealing a young agent in disguise. The generals watch as a scrawny Steve Rogers is led into the lab and is given a formula to drink by the scientist who has committed the formula to memory. Right before everyone's eyes, Steve Rogers begins changing. Within seconds, Steve Rogers has transformed into an Adonis. The next, <laughs> I like that word. The next second, a Nazi spy enters the lab and murders the scientist before Steve with his newfound strength. Before Steve and with his newfound strength, takes on the agent. But as the agent runs away, the agent stumbles into the lab equipment, destroying it. However, the super soldier formula has been lost with the scientist's death. So the animation here is very weird. Let's uh, get into it. Let's yeah, get yeah. into it. I, I, for, for some bits of it, it felt like can it, you, Terry Gilliam's work on Monty Python, that kind of... Can you justice. describe what we're seeing to people that haven't seen it? Well, as we said before, they've literally photocopied panels from the comic taking out all mm. the text and are making the lips move uh sometimes there's a bit of walking where you just see the top of the shoulders <laughs> and they're, 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 you know they're just just bouncing and it's it's a very cheap trick but it you know whatever it works but then you have bits where like they were climbing up the stairs but they're in freeze frame but they're talking yeah so yeah it's uh, i it's get jerky it's, it's jerky it's, it's it's a little odd it's not great like, when you're talking about the Terry Gilliam work with Monty Python, it is very much meant to look like someone is moving these things yeah. in jerky motion because it's silly. It's but si- this just looks like that. It's just like, yeah, this this isn't trying to be funny or silly. This is basically we didn't we 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 we, we called ourselves an animation studio and <clears throat> we had to we we legally required to put quotations around the word animation. <laughs> <laughs> But it's not. It's not. I don't find it bad or painful to look at. I really enjoyed watching. It. I no, felt it, very dynamic and. It is. It is good. It's just like I've never seen anything like this before. Yeah. So it's a bit jarring at first. But you get used very to it jarring. and you go, "Oh, this is fine." I'm basically watching a comic book. I'm watching mm. a comic book. It's fine. At a training camp, Rogers, under the guise of a bumbling GI instead of the strong man he is, trains to fight in the war. Over the course of the next few weeks, Rogers under the alias Captain America, breaks up Nazi spy rings in the US. Captain America's exploits are admired by Bucky Barnes, the camp's teenage mascot. Barging into Steve's tent, Bucky discovers Roger's secret. He is Captain America. While Roger doesn't know how to handle the secret being known, Bucky suggests that Cap let him be his partner. So, Bucky Barnes is a teenage mascot. When I think mascot, I think a guy in a bear costume, but... They got a teenager. Also, in this, he has the voice of a middle-aged man, which I found really <laughs> hilarious. Sorry, how's he a mascot? Is he just a uh, what is, is what? Mascot doesn't mean wearing a costume. 
I always thought it meant like kind of like like like, like, like an iconographic thing rather than he sound he basically sounds he, he he comes across as the person who's cleaning up the latrines. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it is. That's what a mascot is in this case. It's not. No, it's just. It's like what would you what do you call somebody that does nothing other than keep up morale? Ah, uh, right. <clears throat> that's, that's, that sounds like a, a maid. You made sound like oh, a maid who who's very good, very very chatty. Well, I mean, I don't. I mean, he's helping out. I, I don't think he has official duties or anything. He's just the kid that hangs around. He, he just he just hangs Look, around. What they don't want to do is call him the team's orphan. Right? <laughs> they come up with a job. They come up with something for him to do and say. We 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 called him the teens orphan because it actually works better out for taxes for tax reasons. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously this does not match the origin of Cap we see in the MCU. What can you tell us about this story? Well, this is this is the original <clears throat> telling of the story from 1941 from Timely Comics mm. um, before the Marvel Universe had begun. Yeah. Um, how do you feel seeing the process be? Cap just drinks a vial of liquid. Underwhelming. There's no big machine. There's no needles. There's no glug glug glug. It it it, it feels like asterisk, asterisk, <coughs> and obelisk. How do you mean? Oh right, because they, right, right. they have the magic yeah. potion. They drink that gives yeah. them their strength. This is like this is just asterisk. Or for children of the uh, of the eighties, the gummy juice from the gummy bears. <laughs> Always. Um, what is the second time gummy you mentioned gummy bears, bears in this podcast? Bouncing here and there and everywhere. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I did like that they um, had adapted uh, in the movie. They they kept the idea of the secret. It's a shop, but it's not a shop. I always really liked that yeah. kind of stuff. Like there was a lot of it in like Get Smart and things like that. And uh, I, man, I really, I like this. That man from Uncle, isn't it? The man from Uncle has it where it's above a laundromat or something. Yeah, and then they yeah. use they directly use that in Archer for the for the spy agency. It's a direct reference to the man from Uncle. I have very strong memories of this particular episode. Oh yeah, um, from when I was a kid. It, I, I I believe I don't think I'd ever seen Captain America's origin before this. Mm. I think this was the watching this as a child was the first time I actually saw Captain America's origin story because yeah. when you read comics. When you just when you're in general, you read comics. You're kind of just jumping in midstream, mid-adventure. Mm. You don't you don't in you can't go back res. and start. Yeah. Well, you can't go back and start with the with the origin in the first issue because it's from the forties or whatever, and it's retold a couple of times. But you still you don't with comics you don't find a starting point. You just start. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's not like you're going like, oh, well, the first issue is him before he gets his powers, and nothing's happened yet. But we're slowly setting no. up the pieces. No one's going to read that. No one reads that. Well, they did eventually with Ultimate Spider-Man, but still, yeah. But that's like after the fact, and it's like and a retro course, look. Yeah. And in the in the UK in the eighties, hmm. there isn't a comic book shop. You're reading like random comics from random issues and hmm. secondhand shops and things like that. So, yeah, the first time I saw Cap's Origin would have been this. Yeah. Um, I was always really struck, and I don't quite know in which way by. Two things: Cap having a bumbling secret identity. I remember <laughs> thinking it was neat, but also thinking it was a bit like Clark Kent as a kid. Yeah, yeah, it's very um, Clark Kent esque. And Bucky accidentally barging into his tent 
discovering the secret, and then essentially blackmailing him <laughs> into "Let me be your partner." Um, I, I, as a as a kid, I don't know. I, I I imagine I probably really liked it because it's it's child wish fulfillment, isn't it? So it, perhaps it, I wanted that. I don't know. Yeah, although I, I I'm wondering like how long was Cap hoping to keep that uh, that up with the tent? Like, didn't he at least try to tie a knot around the tent door or something? <clears throat> I don't know. Look, to be fair. This kid is not going to last very long on the front line of a war. Like, his, how long is his secret really going to be exposed for? Not well, very long. Is he actually going to go into war? The mascot. Jeez. Okay. Well, that's. Depressing. Well, he becomes he becomes the super child Bucky. Super. Exactly. When he puts a. I don't know. He puts a mask on and call him Bucky. Head, heading into battle, Bucky with his new uniform joins Captain America <clears throat> as his sidekick. Later, Cap and Bucky spot an enemy sub off the shore of the U.S. With little effort, the duo take out the sub's crew by the shore before using their explosive munitions to take out the sub. That evening, at a theatre, a stage hypnotist, Sando, puts Omar under a trance, correctly predicting a tank attack. Back Can in- you explain that, correctly predicting a tank attack? Well, I, 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 I was kind of confused. It's like, has this tank attack already happened? Is it about to happen? Because, like... It was kind it's of, very confusing. It's very weird. It's a, incredibly weird because, like, at first I'm like, okay, who is Omar? Is he like a government official he's getting secrets out of? But he's just, I think some of this is because we've jumped in with. I don't know if this is the, this is the first episode, though, isn't it? This is, the, this is the first episode. Yeah. There is no backstory behind Sando or Omar. We just. No. We're, we're, we're being very weirdly grabbed by the hand and pulled through this in a, in a, in a, in a very. Like basically, you just have to go. Oh, whatever. I'm not going to question anything. Just throw things at my face, you know. Yeah, it's pretty much that. Uh, back at the base, Rogers and Bucky are hired to drive a major to his home in the city before driving off to the theater. I, I like the cartoony sound effects. I know you mentioned this before. They're like, oh, we're going to try and keep it. You know, not too many cartoony sound effects, and they did. I, I kind of like it, even though they they at the same time you had the written comic book sound effects appearing on the yeah. screen at the same time. It's like, <laughs> hey, that works. That's fine. That's quite funny. I wonder. I wonder if they knew the Batman TV series was going to do those big effects on screen because it's because ca- they're, they're yeah. happening at the same year, yes. the same time. Because I would have gone like, "Oh, that must." But the thing is, with Batman, you didn't have the sound effects; you just had the music. The music sting would kick in like bow, bow, yeah. like a trombone, rather than a, <clears> that fitted <throat> in with the music, rather than this weird sound effect. But yeah, similar yeah. kind of thing. I think it's well, just it's just, yeah. just just putting the just splashing. The SFX on the screen um, <clears throat> is quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, it's of its time, and I enjoy it. So, obviously, this is not the Bucky we see in the MCU. Uh, what's going on with how different he is? Well, this was always the the this was always what Bucky was. The history mm. of Bucky. Um, he wasn't older than Steve Rogers. He was a, he was a child character like um, Robin, mm. who served as the wish fulfillment role for kids reading the reading the comics. Um, his backstory does not make sense to a modern audience. <laughs> but that's that's very common for a character from the 90, you know, from, the, from 60 odd years ago. So in 2000, 2005-2006, when this amazing writer called Ed Brubaker was, was writing Captain America, mm. <clears throat> he put a plan in motion to bring Bucky back from the dead. The Winter Soldier plan was his mm. idea, the story of that. Which hadn't, ha- you know, Bucky had been dead since, um, let's say the sixties. Mm. It's possibly the fifties slash the forties. <clears throat> it's complicated because he comes back in the fifties, but it's not really him. Anyway, 
<coughs> Sorry, excuse me. <coughs> oh, hello. Uh, I've been uh, struggling with a virus, which is why the last episode never happened, and I've just ever so slightly caught something there. So, uh, he's going to bring Bucky Barnes back from the dead. The first thing that Ed Brubaker wants to do before bringing him back is to rewrite the character's origin mm. and, and to give it the kind of context and update to, that would make it make sense for a modern audience. So in a series of flashbacks that, that, that Cap experiences from his perspective, we see the truth of Bucky Barnes. The first thing these flashbacks do was age up the character, mm. so that he wasn't like a pre. He was a, he was an he was an old he was a teenager. He was fifteen, about sixteen, maybe years old, rather than eleven mm. <clears throat> or whatever he's meant to be. Um, no longer is he this very very young kid. The idea that he's a costumed mascot um, was described in the flashbacks as all for show. It was Pete. <laughs> PR for morale mm. and to help with the war effort back home. The, the the truth is, the flashbooks reveal that Bucky is actually a ruthless black ops operative. Oof. A very hard life, hard upbringing, an orphan, both parents dead, had to fight scrap his whole life, and then he'd been, he's been an army brat his whole life. In the same vein as like the French resistance fighters who often had teenagers yeah. fighting and killing alongside them. That's Bucky. Um, <clears throat> and Bucky is used as like the secret weapon of Cap's division of the Allies. His youth letting him kind of confuse and disarm opponents where we think, oh, this young child can't possibly be part of any resistance fighters. What's going on, small boy? And then Bucky gets a knife in the throat. Um, so, yeah, the flashbacks show him killing multiple Nazis with a great degree of skill. And Excellent. But originally, this was Bucky. He was like Robin, uh, a very young kid hanging around with superheroes for reasons that don't make sense in a modern audience yeah i to I, I could totally get that that would work because the moment you see any kind of dynamic like that you're just like that's just robin that's just Rob that's just robin yeah. and it's questionable <clears throat> heading into battle bucky oh sorry that's the bit i've we just read uh sneaking backstage rogers and bucky want to know the secret behind sando's powers while the show starts the heroic duo slip into their costumes and take over the projectionist booth the pictures on the crystal ball are actually done via the projector. The next second, they are spotted by an audience member, blowing their cover. Springing into action, Cap demands an explanation from Sando, but Sando refuses, attacking Cap, forcing Rogers to knock him out. The next second, Cap hears a scream from the dressing room and barges in. However, it's a trap. A mob of armed goons are holding Bucky and a special agent hostage. All the bad guys look like gangsters, which I think is a great touch. Well, yeah, they have to. What else could they look like? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, they're fighting. They're fifth columnists, aren't they? Fighting on uh, on home turf. Fifth columnists. What could, What's that? <clears throat> um, you're working for an, an, an another country, another nation, and an, an enemy power. Uh, fifth columnist. Ah, uh, I never, I never um, heard that term before. It's it's kind of, I guess, because spy doesn't quite mm. hold hold necessarily up but it's similar to, you're not necessarily reporting stealing information and reporting it and sending it back you're a saboteur yeah. or you're a whatever you're you're a fifth columnist um yeah so they, they're, they're trying to blend in with the 1940s and that, that makes I suppose. 
I suppose it's because it's, cause it's the, a 60s show and this is the only, I think it's the only story that takes place in the 40s as well. But even in some of the mm. other episodes, they look like gangsters. <laughs> the people look like gangsters. It's because everyone wore wore suits with hats all yeah. the time. In, in the 60s, unless you were counterculture a kid, yeah. you, if, you, if you were going to the shops as a man, you'd put on shirt and tie and a jacket and, you know? That's a really, I feel really stupid now because I have watched Mad Men and I should know this. anyway entering the room sando reveals to cap that his real name is colonel tranks sando sounds like a crap nickname oh like if if, like (laughs) someone's surname was was sanders all right sando sando all right sando you get the pints in it sounds like a like a scouser would say hey all right sando you're gonna get the pints in eh you know anyway he reveals that his name is colonel tranks and takes his orders from the red skull Meanwhile, the Major relaxes in his study before being pounced on by the Red Skull. Before the Major can get his gun, the Red Skull knocks him out with sleeping gas. Back at the theatre, Cap and Bucky make short work of the goons with help from the special agent. Before the Colonel can shoot Cap when his guard is down, Bucky jumps in and knocks out the Colonel. With the group taken down, the agent introduces herself (coughs) as Agent 13. Donning their army uniforms again, Cap and Bucky head to the Major's home. Uh, Red Skull looks absolutely demented here. Yeah, Kirby's depiction of Red Skull is just always incredible. You can really tell, like why this why this character is meant to be terrifying. I, I, I was thinking more weird. He's very lumpy faced. Like I know he's trying to draw like the. the it's a skull. I know it's a skull, but it's it, it, your it, skull is lumpy. Will I? There's lumpy and there's this. It looks. I don't know. It, it does look a bit ter- you know off putting, but I was just really taken aback by it. I, I I much prefer the modern film version of it because it looks like a skull. I'm incredibly distracted right now because Will looks like he is ascending to heaven. Oh, the light! The, the, the light! light I don't know what room. is it. Is it is it just a sun coming in from outside? Is that the, all it is? The sun's coming from outside, and my webcam isn't uh, automatically adjusting. Basically, Will has no features. I can't tell when his. I can't see the. I can't see any. I can't see your skull. I can there see eyes go. floating. I thought you were going to tell say <clears throat> you look like a skull, like you were going to do it. The as a white look. skull. I can't see. I cannot see your head. Wait. It's the most peculiar thing. I'm just doing a thing now. So oh, we'll, there, there you go. it I is. Can see yeah, there's a hey. there's a program I had to download. And what you do is you open it and it adjusts the camera. And I'm thinking, wow. like, why can't Google Meet do that for me instead? That's really annoying. <coughs> anyway, anyway, were, what's that thing that happens when you rapture? I thought it was the rapture. The rapture. Popping <laughs> off up to heaven and no, no, that's not the rapture. <coughs> that's not the not the rapture, Rob. That's just plain old. Everyday nuclear explosion. Uh, <laughs> so, Agent Thirteen. I swear we've mentioned her before. Have you? What can you tell us about her? Yeah, this is this is actually some some retconning that's mm. going on here. They have not taken this direct from the forties because Agent Thirteen was first created in nineteen sixty six, the year this comes out. Um, so, Agent Thirteen is Sharon Carter. I bloody knew it. Sharon Carter was not part of the original Captain America stories of the 40s. She did not fight during World War II. Neither did Peggy Carter, not a character that existed. Agent 13 is an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., which isn't mentioned in this, uh, but there you go. Uh, She first meets Cap in 66 when he's been revived from his ice nap. Hmm. Um, And, yeah, uh, she looks very familiar to Captain America. There's a strong attraction between them. And then Cap 
uh, meets Agent 13 and kind of discovers what's going on when he meets her aunt, Aunt Peggy. Ah. <clears throat> Peggy Carter was, um, he, he met her, he didn't know her real name, but he met this unnamed French resistance fighter during World War II, a freedom fighter, mm. <clears throat> fought beside her, had a love affair, then she was hurt by an exploding uh, shell, um, and he never saw her again. Thought maybe she was dead or whatever, but she had, uh, I think she has amnesia and goes back home and there we go. Um, and her her niece looks just like her, but how convenient. luckily for Captain America, 15 years younger. Because <laughs> it's, it's not like in the, in the modern movies when it's like, oh, but now... That if you met the love of his life now, she's like Peggy is so old that there's impossible mm. to be. But in the comics, it was he forty five to sixty six. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> so he's meeting someone that's just like a decade and a bit older. <laughs> um, my long lost love. I can't possibly be with you. You're fifteen years older than you were. <laughs> um, <clears throat> from sixty six onwards, Agent Thirteen becomes. Captain America's love interest and mm. um yeah she becomes one of the few people that knows his secret identity not that that matters in Captain America it just other than I don't know he's got no family it doesn't really matter and she keeps um disappearing on shield missions which strains their relationship and is very good for tension and drama and all that stuff like that yeah nice at the major's home Cap and Bucky find officials swarming the place following the Red Skull's attack the Major's assailant might still be close by, so Cap and Bucky split up. Bucky follows some suspicious characters to their lair, but is then captured by the Red Skull. The next moment, there's a knock at the door and Captain, Mar- <coughs> Captain America bursts in, freeing Bucky. But the Red Skull escapes, planning to take out more military officials. His next target is General Curtis. Red Skull in this, this voice, the voice for it, almost speaks like Skeletor. Do you think? Oh, you think? It's like, yeah, kind of, yeah, sort of Captain America. Yeah. You know, it's a typical villain. So I was wondering, maybe they got the idea of Skeletor. They may want to yeah. I mean, I can't think of many other kind of skeleton-themed villains that that kind of would be more influential than this. Yeah, but any time someone's done a skeleton voice in a cartoon, it's always, yeah, like that kind of thing. Because I think that's like... Is it? Again, no, it didn't happen once in Skeleton Warriors. Maybe it's, I'm sure there's probably an episode of Scooby Doo where it happens. But anyway, that's a skeleton voice. I always say they hear, and that's oh, it's a skeleton. <laughs> a few days later at the army base, sorry, the army air base, because that's a thing. General Curtis gathers the troops to watch a demonstration of a new bomber plane. However, moments after takeoff, the bomber's engine explodes with the plane crashing nearby. That night at the camp, Cap and Bucky muse over what could have gone wrong with the bomber. Cap is suspicious of one of the officials, Maxim, smiling when the plane crashed. Sneaking into the general's house, they find the Red Skull holding the housemaid hostage. Taking the Red Skull down, Cap demands answers about the crash. As Red Skull gloats that the real Maxim was on the plane with one of the Red Skull's men taking over in disguise. The next second, a group of goons open fire at the duo, allowing the Red Skull to escape. Back at camp, Steve and Bucky read the news about Maxim's imposter being caught as they wonder when they'll counter the Red Skull again. That drill sergeant really hates Steve, doesn't he? <laughs> it, I mean, it's, yeah. it, it, it's, it's a typical, like, if it seems like something from a sitcom, like, <laughs> Rogers! Why are you yeah, t- or, a, or a J. Jonah thing. Yeah, yeah. I. So, what happens, is this pretty much what happens when the cat faces Red Skull in the 40s? He's doing some sabotaging stuff on US soil, and he punches him. 
Nearly, nearly. When when we first meet the Red Skull in the 1940s, for Mm. me, it it very strongly reeks of the Joker. Yeah. Um, He's this creepy, terrifying killer with a weird Mm. face, (laughs) killing off wealthy businessmen in the comics in kind of a mysterious way that no one can solve. Um, It's revealed that the Red Skull is actually a wealthy businessman called John Moxon. Mm who is jabbing people with hypodermic needles and injecting them with something that kills them and makes the death look natural. <laughs> That's the mysterious death. Wow. Uh, Cap catches him, knocks the mask off, which is like a hard mask, and it breaks and reveals, oh, it's the selfish businessman I encountered earlier, John Mox- Maxon. Um, and during a fight with Cap, Maxon rolls over onto his own deadly needles and dies. <laughs> Oh, God. And Bucky is appalled and asks Cap why he didn't save the man and stop him from doing that. And Cap says, I don't want to talk about it. And then he calls the FBI and says, this is a suicide. That's all you're getting from me. Wow. <laughs> it's like, I hate that guy. I'm glad he's dead. And then after afterwards, this has had no connection to the war at all. They find a scrap of paper that says... Essentially, and by the way, I worked for Hitler. <laughs> ah, tied into our central theme at the end. Um, oh, by the way, like, I wrote, for, I worked for Hitler. That's a great end to any letter. I mean, I'm summarizing. Yeah, um, I know. Much like the first appearance of the Joker, where he has like three, two or three appearances in the first issue that he's in, and then he dies at the end forever mm. because that's not that. Comics weren't written with this ongoing thought in their heads, really. Yeah. There's often this thing of uh, the the villain will die, and Robin will sell someone. Commissioner Gordon will say, "Oh, we didn't see the body. It fell into the lake or to the ocean." Um, that's the last we'll see of the Joker, and Batman will go, "I'm not so sure about that." Yeah. Because some of the writer might use him, yeah. but they didn't. You know, same with the the, the Red Skull. They introduced this guy and killed him off because they were like. What else are we going to do with him? And then it was like, oh no, he was really popular and a good villain, and we've killed him in the first time he was here. What a mistake we've made! So stop pandering to your audience. Write your own journey. <laughs> so they, they they bring him back several times. Yeah. Um. But but what they do is they bring him back in issue seven of Captain America. Mm. Make no mention of John Maxon. <laughs> the dude is just back, and this time he's a full on Nazi. With a gang of Nazi spies, Hitler, German voice, accent, everything. Um, later, Marvel stories later on would establish that John Maxon was not the real Red Skull. Hmm. He was actually um, one of many Americans manipulated uh. by the Red Skull into wearing a mask and doing his bidding and stuff. So if you look at um, the Red Skull's first appearance, it is Captain America issue one. But that's not the real Red Skull. But it's the first time he appeared. The first that's time John the, Maxon. The, mention the first, of, yeah. the first appearance by Johann Schmidt, the quote unquote real Red Skull, is issue seven, mm. um, which is not the first appearance of the Red Skull. Tony Stark makes you feel he's a cool exec with a heart of steel. And Iron Man all gets a place in my For 
another theme tune of its time. Tony Stark, Tony Stark. I love if it. Iron Man. They felt very 40s jazz, didn't it? Like, it felt a bit fabulous. I don't know. I got, yeah, I got 50s, 60s vibes from it. Okay. I don't, know, I, I don't know if I'd be able to know the difference between 40s and I don't know. I just 60s heard, jazz. I heard jazz and just went, as ah, probably 40s. Jazz stopped. <laughs> yeah, ev- everything afterwards is rock and roll. <laughs> anyway. I, yeah, sorry. I love that they've all got these, all these individual different little... Uh, the world, I think we said this when we were chatting about it, the world was better <laughs> when everything had a song like this that explained the premise of the show <laughs> and every advert had a jingle that, that made you remember the name of the product, the phone number... Or whatever it was. Everything was better. The world was better. The world was Mad better. Mad Men was right. <laughs> anyway, that brings us on to episode two. Iron Man in Ultimo. One night at a Stark Enterprises factory, an explosion of electricity bursts in the distance. As Tony Stark is riding to a hearing with a senator, their car is struck by this energy, making them disappear. Meanwhile, in the Far East, the Mandarin is addressed in his castle by a Chinese general who demands the Mandarin's aid, uh, Mandarin aid their army. But the Mandarin responds by using his powers to rain stones and rocks upon the surrounding troops. The general, now subsided, agrees to leave quietly. Mandarin serves no nation. I know this is old, uh, but man, the Mandarin's, Mandarin's voice is a hate crime. <laughs> it's brutal. It's really brutal. If you, I mean, just FYI, yeah. they have not hired an Asian actor to play the role. It nope. is a white Canadian man, and it is absolutely brutal. It's it's bad. Anyway, the next moment, the car Tony was riding in materializes, but Tony is missing. Tony is stuck in the space-time continuum before being summoned before the Mandarin, who uses a transdiment, who used a transdimensional device to bring him here. The Mandarin was actually seeking Iron Man but will happily settle for the hero's employer. Mandarin can still feel the sting of their last violent encounter and wants revenge. He reveals his plan to unleash something called Ultimo, but before Tony can ask what that is, Mandarin uses his power rings to launch Tony Stark's briefcase out of the window and into the water below. Inside the case is Tony's Iron Man suit, leaving him helpless. I like how older style Tony Stark is just basically chiseled jawed Howard Hughes yeah 100% yeah. Just, obviously but I think they would have gone for that not subconsciously but like come on it's basically going to be Howard no, Hughes fully, fully intentional how they drew the character yeah, yeah Don, fully Don intentional Heck. you can see that and it works it's really good so we've covered the Mandarin a little bit uh, different iterations of him can you remind us what are his powers and what can he do with his rings in each finger is a ring with a different power Ice blast. The power mm. to blast ice. Good. The electro blast. The power to blast electros. Okay. Flame blast. I wonder what that could be. The power to <laughs> blast them flames. Um, yeah, those are pretty self-explanatory, aren't they? That'd be enough, really, wouldn't it? Yeah. If there was a yeah. villain who could shoot ice, fire, and electricity... Do you go, that's a villain? We mm. Stop there. No. Um, <laughs> Mento Intensifier. It's like Mento Intensifier. Blast. Oh, right. I thought, I thought that like, was something no, to do. Mento something... Intensifier. Oh, I thought it was to do with, like, mints. 
These mints aren't minty enough. I will use the Mento Intensifier. The Mento Intensifier increases the mintiness of the Mento in your mouth. Yeah. Uh, until you obey the Mandarin's commands. You must um, su- go to fulfill my whims and submit to me. Oh, I, I, I would resist, but my mouth is just too minty. I hope I don't drink happens. orange juice soon. <clears throat> uh, the white light ring. <laughs> the white light ring sounds, oh, can that just like, just make a really bright light? And yeah. the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> but it controls the electro, uh, light. It controls the electromagnetic spectrum. Okay. It can also create magnetic fields <laughs> and holograms and control gravity. <laughs> <laughs> He's not done. <laughs> but the wait, there's light. more. The black light. Oh, I dare I ask what the black light ring does? It creates a total, total darkness that absorbs oh. all light. Oh, okay. Um, I was thinking something else. The uh, disintegration beam. Oh, God. Which does what you think. Which does what you think. The, yeah. The impact beam, mm-hmm. which produces a great concussive force. Uh, the vortex beam, he can fly. Mm. Uh, and then, oh, what should the tenth one be? Oh, the matter rearranging ring. It's basic- that can rearrange matter. Otherwise known as the undo button ring. The freaking god ring. <laughs> he can turn one substance into anything he wants. He is used. He can turn men into statues. He turned a, a mountain into a rock monster that was somehow alive. Um, he can turn air into gas, poison gas, water into stone. Just <laughs> an insane much. amount of power. That's too much. It's, it's too like much. inventing Superman, and you, you've gone, ah, oh, no, we should have ramped up to this dude. Yeah. We should have had a, a, a strong guy first. Yeah. For our, fir- our first superhero... Should have just had one power, not all of them. Not all. <laughs> as Mandarin pulls a lever, a nearby volcano rumbles as a titanic figure emerges, Ultimo. Without the ability to become Iron Man, Stark helplessly watches the impossibly huge figure. As Ultimo runs amok, the Mandarin attempts to take control of the Titan. While the Mandarin is busy, Tony sneaks away. Viewing his security cameras, Mandarin spots a group of soldiers approaching his castle and sets Ultimo upon them. But before Tony can successfully sneak away, Mandarin uses his power rings on Stark, launching him down a flight of stairs. That was hilarious. Seeing yeah. Something about seeing Tony Stark thrown down a flight of stairs was hilarious. I laughed so hard. I, I did find it that funny, but I, now, now I'm finding it funny that you find that funny. <laughs> Just threw him down a flight of stairs. Get out of there! Get out of there! I'll use my rings. What are you going to do? Chuck him down the stairs. You could have just kicked him down the stairs. Yeah, I, yeah, I see the funny side of it now. <laughs> well, you know, he's halfway across the room. He's got a big castle. Uh, the initial walking animation for Ultima made me burst out, burst out laughing. Where they've just taken the still mm. image and like moved it, like it's boom, boom, and I, no. I just, I just howled. And like, then the second more impressive animation made it look like he was listening to reggae music. <laughs> what do you that, mean? He had this sort of easy strut going on. <laughs> oh, did I, like, I didn't remember that. And he's like, oh, there's a, you could you could put reggae music to the background of this, and it would fit. <laughs> So, <laughs> they haven't explained what Ultimo is. No. They have, 
Is he a robot? Is he a god? Is he a golem? What is he? Um, and the first, in the first like couple of appearances, it's just robot that the Mandarin built and guess. Kept, kept in a volcano for some yeah. reason. But then uh, we eventually find out no, the Mandarin did not invent him. He just found it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's a race of giant humanoid robots that were built on an unknown alien planet many centuries ago. Mm. What we know or assume is that aliens built these alien robots. Mm. Um, they discovered... Uh, okay. A way to turn biomatter into incredible energy, as in organic, organic matter. Mm. So they built these giant Ultimos to be powered by the consumption of organic matter. And then they went, I don't see any problem with this in the future. Us <laughs> organic beings creating giant robots that eat organic beings. <laughs> uh, and then the giant robots ate all the aliens that built them. Because that's what they were designed and built to do. That's that's like Oppenheimer building the nuclear bomb and then going, oh god, they they used it. Jeez, why did why did the thing I use with his only being to destroy destroyed something? <laughs> uh, yeah, and then they destroyed their creators, and and then a, 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 one one of them, whatever one of them becomes Ultimo, kind of gets free or kills the others or leaves the planet, something like that, and it gets a reputation a bit like Galactus as this. This threat that goes around and kill, you know, eats all the doesn't destroy the planet, but eats all the organic beings and mm. kills races and stuff. Oof. One of its victims was the planet Rajak, which Ultima wiped clean of all life. Only a group of survivors were off planet during the attack, and they built a spaceship and tracked him down to get their revenge. And there was a fight some description they trick him into a meteor shower there's always a meteor shower and it <laughs> knocks him on the head and he crash lands onto what would be earth and what would eventually be <clears throat> buried in the ground mm. to the area of china oh. and then the, <clears throat> the mandarin finds him and digs him up and makes him his slave which is if you're counting the second crashed alien construct that this mandarin dude has found and dug up in his backyard. The first being the ship that had all the rings that he's got. Mm. <clears throat> he's oh, just yes. digging around he's, in he's China dig- looking digging around. for aliens. And he, he finds two. What a lucky person. I know. I've never found any. Yeah. But Rubbish. I've also never been to China, so... <laughs> Maybe that's where they all keep them. <laughs> Recovering. Tony Stark uh, was saved from Mandarin's blast by his hidden pl- chest plate. Without wasting time, Tony retrieves his briefcase from the moat and suits up. Nearby, the troops are helpless against Ultimo and start to retreat. The next moment, Iron Man appears and faces up against the giant as Ultimo blasts lasers from his eyes. Back in Washington, the senator is angered at Stark's sudden disappearance and issues an ultimatum. Either Tony makes an appearance within 48 hours or all of his government contracts are cancelled. I like that in a ridiculous story, they still had time to do government admin stuff. <laughs> Characters with a secret identity, mm. like they always have to juggle, the, like the supervillain or the action is always going to affect both their lives at the same time. 
their superhero life and their private life, right? Yeah. Um, the stakes in like a Spider-Man comic are all these things like, oh, because he's fighting Dr. Octopus, he'll lose his job or his girlfriend yeah, yeah, will leave yeah. him because he's not around or his aunt really needs his medicine. In Iron Man, the stakes are multi-millionaire Tony Stark <laughs> might not make as much money as he wants to this year. <laughs> oh, not my government contracts. How am I meant to feel for this guy, Stan? What am I... You're not getting your Christmas bonuses. You're not getting... <clears throat> two of you are fired. <laughs> All because I was fannying around fighting a big monster in China, when, which I won't tell when you, you say When you say your government contracts, you mean to build... Uh, Weapons for the military? Yeah! I might not be able to build as many bombs and guns for money this year. Oh, oh no. What will happen to Tony Stark? <laughs> oh, no. I can't believe this is happening to the good guy. <laughs> <laughs> as Iron Man fights Ultimo, his attempts are seemingly useless. Watching the fight, Mandarin uses his device to launch energy attacks at Iron Man, forcing him to flee before landing on top of the volcano. As Ultimo approaches the top of the volcano, Iron Man prepares a powerful ray blast, but is surprised to see Ultimo absorb the attack. As Ultimo approaches Iron Man, Iron Man dodges the laser blast from the giant's eyes, tricking him to hit the volcano, setting it off to erupt. As magma explodes out of the volcano, Ultimo perishes from the destructive power. Mandarin is further displeased to find that Tony Stark has escaped, unaware that Stark is actually Iron Man. Arriving at a nearby airbase, Iron Man fights past the troops and steals a jet to fly back to the US. Using a phone inside the jet, Stark is able to call the senator and save his company. I love that there's a massive rotary phone and a fighter jet. <laughs> that was hilarious. That was genuine. I, I mean, they must have, they can't have done that seriously. They must have thought, oh, it would be funny if there was a phone in there. I, I wonder whether they just thought, oh, how are we going to like yeah. show the audience these radioing them or something? Yeah, you don't, you, all you need to do is just do a little thing. Radio. But that wouldn't connect to a senator somewhere else. Uh, that true. would that would only connect to like whoever is in control of your fighter I don't know. I don't know. So Ultimo sounds like that's the end of him, or does he return for future stories? Because no way they're going to use something like that once. He returns a lot. Will mm. um, he, he? He gets dumped <laughs> in a volcano at the end of this story, and guess what? That's not the last time he gets dumped into a volcano. It happens a further three separate times. Why don't you dump him in something else? Volcanoes. Dump him it's in clearly something not else. working, guys. <laughs> the the very last time he gets dumped in a volcano, he buries himself to the bottom and then mm. just sorts of sort of starts to go swimming through <laughs> the bedrock of the planet. Um, oh. And he, he absorbs geothermal energy and finally no. becomes as powerful as more powerful than ever before. Oh. And then like in um there's an important story called the Iron Legion where Tony Stark is gone and Ultimo's back and so uh Rhodey is wearing the Iron Man suit and he gets everyone that knows Tony Stark's secret identity has to wear an Iron Man suit and go fight Ultimo. <laughs> and it's called the Iron Legion which sounds cool but it's all these people that are not soldiers and it's yeah. Um <clears throat> and then um after being a recurring threat for a while, in sort of 2009-2010, like, a version of Ultimo or Ultimo himself becomes a transmittable cybernetic virus that converts humans into super-powered cyborg beings. Essentially, he becomes an evil version of the extremist virus that um, powered up, upgraded Tony Stark. 
That theme tune uh, kind of reminded me from the of the Huntsman from Freakazoid. Do you remember that one? Um, I remember um, Hunt, Freakazoid, but not the Huntsman. Huntsman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it has got that bounce to it, yeah. Yeah, uh, the Huntsman was fantastic because about 80% of the actual cartoon was the theme tune, and that was the joke. Like, mm-hmm. he had nothing yeah. to do. It was really funny. But yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. Good. We got, I think, we, we got a theme tune that pretty much explains Thor. Great. Yeah, you don't need an episode with that, really. You've kind of done it. There you go. <laughs> no, you've done it. I don't need to know anything about this guy. I, I, I'm satisfied. Anyway, this is Thor in Trapped by Loki. And oh, my God, this episode. What? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. It's just the dumbest thing. It's I a think- series mm. of dumb people being dumb at each other. It's like Obscure Marvel this month. It's just yes. the dumbest people. Yes. Attacking the dumbest people. This does feel like an obscure marvel. Uh, Anyway. At Asgard, the citadel of the Norse gods, Loki is imprisoned within a tree. Despite this, Loki has has been imposing his will upon the tree until he can control it. As Heimdall passes, Loki makes the tree shed a leaf, which lands in Heimdall's eye, causing it to water and freeing Loki. Now escaped from his wooden bonds, Loki takes revenge against Thor, who is currently on Earth. Using the Bifos Bridge, Loki travels to Earth and disguises himself as a human. I don't know how making Heimdall cry frees Loki, but I'll go with it. I don't know if this just omits something that's in the original comic, mm. or if the information we're meant to have remembered from the last episode, so it's not here. I don't know. Mm. But I've read that comic fairly recently for another episode we did. The enchantment that the the enchantment of the imprisonment that Odin puts on him is that Loki will not be freed until an Asgardian sheds a tear for him, and since he is hated <laughs> by all in Asgard, and none have sympathy for Loki, no none shall cry for Loki. But he uses a leaf-based loophole <laughs> to make Heimdall literally shed a tear. This this feels I, like a really weird, poor choice of a safe word or something. <laughs> I think this is from an from uh, original myth. Ah, that's yeah, that, that, that would from. make sense, yeah. Because that it does feels sound like something a little you, too, Yeah, It feels a little too poetic Yes, for Stan. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Stan. We like you, but you do not have poetry within you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, but yeah, this doesn't feel like him. Unable to find Thor, Loki decides to lure him into a trap by using his powers to turn three innocent bystanders into frozen negatives. What does? Can you describe that? Because what does it mean? (sighs) They're frozen in place, and they basically look like Mister Negative. They're they're like they're they're, they're black and white, but the wrong way round or something. They look like a a negative photograph. Photo negative. That's what I mean. But they're yeah, like a photo negative. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's really weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's very odd. Nearby, Doctor Donald Blake and his nurse hear the commotion leading Dr. Blake to disappear nearby and change into Thor. <coughs> Arriving on the scene, Thor uses Mjolnir to reverse Loki's magic. As everyone thanks him for saving the people, Loki approaches Thor in disguise before revealing himself. Loki challenges Thor to a battle high in the air. Without any other choice, Thor accepts the challenge as Loki levitates a red carpet with him into the sky. Very bizarre, turning people into a photo negative. Also, why does uh, Thor have to accept the challenge? Is it just his uh, ego or something? Or... Well, I guess because otherwise this dude's going to do bad stuff. I don't know. They didn't. Yeah. They, that should have been the end of the sentence, shouldn't it? That, that should have been. Yeah. I must. Sh- I must accept this challenge. Otherwise, we'll hurt people. Otherwise, you'll hurt people. Yeah. Exactly. I, no. 
Yeah. Also, FYI, and this will never come up again, Thor's hammer can emit antimatter. Just to let you know, it can do that. And as we all know, uh, antimatter reverses the process of when someone's been turned into a photonegative. We all know that. That's basic science. No, it's no I, I reckon he's got a transistor in the hammer. <laughs> Somewhere in a hammer. Highway above the city. Uh, sorry, high above the city, uh, Thor prepares to strike Loki. However, Loki takes advantage of Thor's spinning hammer, reflecting the sun into his eyes to hypnotise Thor. Say that one again, mate. What happens? <laughs> Loki takes advantage... Because <laughs> it didn't make any sense, you see. So Thor's spinning to... hammer, reflecting yeah, the sun into his eyes to hypnotise okay. Thor. No, what happens? <laughs> Thor's spinning hammer... Thor is flying by spinning uh-huh. his hammer. Yeah, the that makes sun, sense. The sun is reflecting into I'm Thor's with, eyes. I'm with you so far, Stan. And apparently, then, yeah, that Loki can use flickering that light. to hypnotize Thor. Slightly flickering light. Slightly flickering light. Okay, Stan. Slightly whatever flickering you, light. Whatever you say. Yeah. <laughs> Thor is now under Loki's spell, who then commands Thor to hand over Molnir. But even under the spell, the enchantment of the hammer prevents Thor from handing it over. In an attempt to trick Thor, Loki conjures up an image of a sea beast attacking a bystander. But as Thor throws his hammer, it returns to him before Loki can retrieve it. However, Loki has another plan. Creating an image of Thor, Loki tricks Thor into handing his hammer over to this duplicate. This is tiring. This t- <laughs> it is. It's so tiring. It's like plans that don't work and tricks that don't trick. And, oh. and it, 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 it's it's like watching someone. It's like it's 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 like watching someone with no energy try to run a race or something. It feels like a very sort of tired. Sort of, oh, I don't know what it's I'm like doing. It's like trying to watch an idiot trick a fool in a, in a game of no one cares. <laughs> what a poetic thing to say. I like that. I also like that this encounter with gods is just happening in a park somewhere. They clearly are like, we have to have the most bland, basic backgrounds as possible because yeah. we don't want to spend any money animating. Yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's just a park. Without, yeah. Mol- without Molnir, Thor reverts back to Donald Blake. Nearby, so various- we should explain that, I suppose. Yeah, we should, um, because it's, it's in the. I guess it's in the theme song a little bit. Well, you, we, you know, you've heard the theme song, but yeah, please feel to explain just to, just in case. Yeah, at this point in 1966, <laughs> Thor's not really Thor. Thor is a guy called Donald Blake, who is a disabled mm. doctor that has a cane, and when he strikes his cane, he gets the powers of Thor, mm. and sometimes the memories, but not always. And if he lets go of Mjolnir for 60 seconds. He transforms back into a regular person. That's that's you're caught up now. Yeah, I'm just wondering if they, how that would have looked in the MCU. Never mind. There, nearby, various bystanders are struggling to pick up the hammer. When Blake tries to pick it up, he is transformed back into Thor, free from Loki's spell. Before Thor can take care of Loki, the god of mischief escapes to a nearby subway station, shoving various passengers off the platform to the rail below. Get out of here! Get out of here, you mugs! It's like this is that that's that's mischief. That's real god of mischief. What's stuff Loki's like what's Loki's plan? He's gonna push people in front of a train. Jesus! <laughs> I mean that's just mean. That's just really full on. Thor is able to save the people from the passing subway train, but this allows Loki to escape and cause chaos in the city. Using a large pipe from a construction site, yeah. Thor throws it onto Loki's head with uh-huh. the enclosed nature of the pipe, rendering Loki's powers useless. Say that one again, Stan. <laughs> using a large it's pipe. It's a god. It's, a, it's an ancient god, right? That's ancient god. Yeah, okay. yeah. Using a large pipe from a construction <laughs> yeah. site, Thor throws it onto Loki's head. Onto his head, yeah. 
with the enclosed <laughs> nature of the pipe, rendering Loki's powers useless. <laughs> with Loki in tow, right. Thor takes yeah, his cool, half brother no, on if top you're, of the if, if you're happy with it, Stan, that's fine. I'm happy with it because it's pretty much the standard of this episode. <laughs> with Loki in tow, Thor takes his half brother on top of the highest building nearby and uses Mjolnir to launch Loki back to Asgard before the hammer returns he, back to Earth. He, I just, th- he throws him into space. He's a god. He's fine. It's fine. It's just a bit. It's just a bit of a bit of a weird uh, fast trip. So apparently, Loki loses his powers if his head is covered. It's like a budgie when you put a towel over their cage. <laughs> put a towel. I, mean, <laughs> I suppose. I suppose if you can't see things, it's hard to conjure magic or illusions or whatever. Maybe. But that's the. That, that's like anybody. Maybe. It's hard to see. It it's hard to like do anybody. things if you have a pipe on your head. <laughs> It's hard to do most things. <laughs> Thor, Thor should approach every villain the same way. Put a pipe on their head. <laughs> they, they can't get me if their head's in a pipe. <laughs> that would have been a much better ending to Love and Thunder. It's Just like, dropping no. pipes on people. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. God, I love Ella. that. How did you defeat Hela, the goddess? Of the- I put her head in a pipe. Yeah, <laughs> like- She quickly gave up. Yeah, the, like, luckily the construction site workers were on a lunch break, so it was quite easy. <laughs> <laughs> Bought in front of his father, Odin, Loki is imprisoned in the realm of Asgard forever. But Loki has not given up on his vengeance yet. Using an ancient smoke ritual, Loki spies on Thor <laughs> as he changes into Donald Blake. Look, maybe ancient it's part of smoke ritual. <laughs> ancient smoke ritual sounds like the most tedious way to describe getting stoned. It sounds like the worst band you've ever seen. Ancient Smoke Ritual! Yes! All hipsters. Loki now knows Thor's secret identity. Sneaking out of Asgard, Loki uh, travels back to Earth and arrives in disguise at Donald Blake's practice. Hypnotising Jane Foster, Loki enters Blake's room and reveals his identity to him. Striking his cane on the floor, Blake transforms into Thor, with Loki telling him to meet in an hour at the park. It's such a weird climactic. He finally finds out his secret identity, and he gets to, and he goes, and he goes meet me later on in that park over there. Ah. Behind the bike sheds. Just <laughs> stab him. Just stab him in the eyes. Also, also, I like how Loki decided to hypnotise Jane Foster to enter instead of just rudely walking past her, which would have also worked. <laughs> he could have barged past her, but no, he's like, he can't. Uh, listen, he loves when sunlight slightly flickers and he can hypnotise people. Yeah, it's too much sunlight in here. Wait, I could use it to my advantage. I'll grab these mirrors. So... This Donald Blake thing is weird. When did yeah. that stop being part of Thor's story? To begin with, it's very much like um, the the Fawcett Captain Marvel character, Shazam character. Yes, yeah. it's a it's a kind of a person, and, and he can turn into a godlike being with loads of powers, but he turns back if something else happens, mm. and there's lightning involved and stuff. Um, it doesn't last very long, so uh, by 1968, so just two years after this series. In 1968, Thor learns that Donald Blake isn't a real person and never was. Hmm. Odin wanted to teach his son humility, so he transformed him into a mortal, wiped all his memories, Hmm. gave him fake memories of being a person, (laughs) gave him a a permanent disability, and then sent him to Earth to be a doctor. Um, The ultimate punishment. (laughs) Every parent wants their child to be a doctor. Once Thor learns that, 
the Donald Blake thing doesn't go away, mm. but it stops being... Like, he realises it's not a real life. I don't have to keep going to work or do anything. Mm. So it becomes... It's, it's, it's a weird midpoint between 68 and the 1980s. Thor's secret identity is Dr. Donald Blake, disabled doctor, but he doesn't need it and he doesn't spend any time as him. And so, and we don't get, he doesn't have a private life, we don't get any story. It's very, very odd, especially because they also get rid of Jane Foster mm. not too long after mm. that. Because they, they quickly kind of go, it, Thor's, Thor's best just being a supernatural. Um, a fantasy character, a god, cosmic character. That's best. We don't need him with this other life. But they still keep it. They still keep it knocking around. So it's it's a bit odd. Um, just kind of hangs around. It feels like Marvel didn't want to kind of like pull the trigger and really get rid of it because they thought, oh, well, superheroes need a secret identity. But then in the, in the 1980s, there's a writer called Walt Simonson who's doing amazing things on the Thor comic. And he introduces a character called Beta Ray Bill. Ah, is, yes, yes. <clears throat> yeah, he's an alien cyborg. He's the last and only hero of his um, people who are like an endangered species of aliens. Mm. And he's noble enough and strong enough to lift Mjolnir and is worthy of the powers of Thor mm. and beats Thor in a fight. And Odin is like, wow, this guy's amazing. I love you. You're cool. I shall forge a weapon just for you called Stormbreaker. Uh. And you will have the same powers as my son Thor. Um, and he then transfers the Mjolnir enchantment to Stormbreaker. Specifically the bit that is, it can turn you into a mortal and it can change your appearance. Mm. And so, because Beta Ray Bill has had to become a horrible cyborg person mm. to become strong enough to save all his people, he's not regular anymore. But now he uses Stormbreaker and the, the old transformation enchantment to strike it on the ground and become a regular. Uh, I can't think of the name of his Dalaxamite, something like that. Um, mm. So yeah, so that so that that is now that enchantment is now gone from Mjolnir. And it no longer turns Thor into a regular person. Donald Blake vanishes and is never, not never, but he's not really part of stories anymore. So it hangs around like a wet fart for about <laughs> 15 years and then they ditch it. Mm, that sounds about right. At the park, Thor launches his hammer at Loki. However, Jane Foster just happens to be walking by using Stupid Jane to Jane his Foster. advantage. Sorry? Stupid Jane Foster. He's <laughs> Using Jane to his advantage, Loki transforms a nearby bush into a tiger, which what advances. What happened? Sorry? <laughs> Loki transforms a nearby bush into a tiger, which advances. I'm just checking that's what happened. Yeah. That's what happened. It's hard I, I, to tell. I, I, For all I know, you might be having a, a stroke in the middle of this sentence. I just got to check in, make sure. I had to right. rewind it just to double check that's what happened. Without retrieving his hammer, Thor pounces on the tiger and slays the beast. However, the hammer has been out of his grasp for a full minute, changing him back to Donald Blake. Loki exacerbates the situation by creating a force field around Molnir, allowing the god of mischief to cause havoc in the city, changing everything into sweets and desserts. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Evil god. <laughs> oh, there he is. That's, that's not evil. That's just weird and tedious. <laughs> I also like to think that when Thor killed that tiger, uh, animal rights protesters were like, 
That's an endangered species. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> <sighs> also, I just realised that Loki's appearance and voice in this reminds me of the Monarch from Venture Bros. Yeah, the mighty Monarch. He does a yeah, little bit. It is a bit like this in this, anyway. Later, the newspapers report that Thor vows to defeat Loki, which confuses Loki, as there's no way the God of Thunder could have retrieved Molnir. Encountering Thor in the park, Loki removes the force field to see if the hammer is still there. But it's all been a ruse! A Blake- ruse! A ruse! <laughs> Blake just bought along a life-size dummy of Thor. <laughs> of course he did! And uses this moment to grab the hammer again, turning back into Thor. Loki then turns into a bird and flies. Thor then grabs a tennis net and catches his path brother before taking him to Odin. He could have knocked the bird out with a hammer, but, you know, sure, use a tennis net. When Odin built a trapdoor at the UN. <laughs> <laughs> Thor is the stupidest comic ever published. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. It's only fitting in this show about outdated ideas of the 60s (laughs) that we confront some of your outdated ideas about podcasting namely (laughs) you can get something good for nothing if you think you can get hours and hours of great quality podcasts in exchange for nothing on your end then you're as outdated as dr donald blake (laughs) if you want great content You've got to get involved. You've got to be a part of the community. You've got to support the people making the stuff that you love. Otherwise, podcasts go dark. Otherwise, podcasts have to stop and uh, podcasters have to go back to doing things, you know, that uh, keep them in eggs and mortgages. Um, You can do that with this podcast on patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. Get up to date Join us and the modern world of content and communities by supporting this podcast, by giving back and making sure that we stay on the air and have the time and the resources to make these episodes just the way you like them. And in exchange, folks, we're not going to leave you hanging and dangling. It's a two-way street. You support us, we support you. We pump just hours and hours of great quality bonus content onto patreon um this month this this year in fact we've released things like the infinity gauntlet a deep dive into the comic book series that inspired tons and tons of the mcu um we got into spider again the sequel to the spider-verse um we brought you the full-length deep dive into the secret invasion all the stuff that the tv series failed to do um that was one of your i mean that's really great episode will because Mm. there's so much going on in the build-up the ramping up to the to the invasion and it's full of twists and turns like a real spy thriller we brought you the kang dynasty earlier this year we're not waiting to 2024 2025 we're doing it right now this year kang tries to take over the world the avengers have to stop him um Huge, huge, huge crossover stories we bring you in our full-length bonus episode deep dives. This month, we bring you, with the Marvels in cinemas, we're going to take a look at the biggest Carol Danvers story ever told, Civil War II. The Avengers, after being played by Thanos and the Celestials, 
are plagued by visions of a dystopian future of death and destruction. Half the Avengers believe they have to take preemptive action to avoid this future. The other half believe that is morally wrong. Captain Marvel assembles her forces. Iron Man Tony Stark assembles his. It's Avenger versus Avenger. It's Iron Man versus Captain Marvel. Miles Morales is caught in the middle. Will, I know you're really excited <laughs> for us to get into this. The second civil war in, in Marvel. Um, yeah. It's a big one. Uh, we're dropping it this month. And everyone at the VIEP tier and above can get hold of it and listen to it. And listen, when you join up at that VIEP tier, that £10 tier, you get access to every single bonus episode that we've done all the deep dives you can watch our live shows the video of our live shows are only available there on patreon um you can see me and will in leicester and again in wolverhampton um and the live show nothing quite like watching the video of it rather than hearing it you can see um all the times that we nearly hit each other um <laughs> <laughs> We, it's more like you. You nearly hit me. <laughs> and um, everyone gets something on Patreon as well. Um, you can support us for as little as just £3 a month, which is barely the cost of a coffee these days. Um, that would help me and Will keep going and have the resources and time to make this podcast. And in exchange would bring you, like, if you thought that Thor thing we just listened to, was ridiculous that's what we do every mm. month on obscure marvel we dive into ridiculous stories and uh, ridiculous characters and it's just absolute laugh after laugh um this month we we looked at the craziest fantastic four story of all time um that johnny storm is <laughs> such an like dr doom is an idiot but he's also targeting the fantastic four who are idiots and johnny storm is the biggest idiot but then the thing he's an idiot about comes is real and happened. Oh God, it was maddening, absolutely maddening. Um, Mister Fantastic tries to walk his hand down eight flights of stairs and pilot <laughs> a plane yeah. when he can't see it. Oh my God! The Invisible Woman makes a guy crash his car because she forgets she's invisible. It's just endless nonsense, and we do that every single month for everybody on Obscure Marvel Patreon dot com slash Marvel versus Marvel. Be part of the community. Support this show. We've given you a hundred episodes of joy. Let's let's help us get to the next milestone. Help us stay on the air and keep going. We don't want to go dark and stop making it. So support us and get incredible bonus content in exchange over on patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. This is the best theme tune so far. <laughs> I, it, I I had it in my head all day. I was going... But what I like is they're explaining, you know, the first two lines, two or three lines, they're explaining what happens. And the next line is saying, isn't he ugly? Isn't the Hulk ugly? Isn't he really ugly? Listen, look at him. Look at him. It's like, this guy's just had a lab accident. He's going to live a horrible life forever. And someone's going, is he? Like, shut up. Don't do that. That's really mean. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible it's just incredible I love these theme songs they're brilliant yeah they're really good so this is uh, the Incredible Hulk episode origin of the Hulk at a gamma bomb test site 
Dr. Bruce Banner, the bomb's creator, watches the impending detonation from the safety of a bunker. However, the other scientists express concern at this horrendous device, while General Thaddeus Thunderbolt Ross yells at Banner for taking so long to do the experiment. Betty Ross, Thaddeus' daughter, apologises for her angry father. For safety, the secret of the gamma bomb is inside Banner's head. But if the experiment goes wrong, the bomb could destroy half the continent. As the time for detonation arrives, Banner spots a teenager driving a car towards the test site. Without wasting time, Banner rushes to stop the boy after telling Igor, his assistant, to stop the detonation. However, I just don't don't hire people called Igor to be your assistant. Just as a rule of thumb, there's something 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 wrongs going on there, isn't there? Yeah, I mean. Not, not only that, but I mean, he must he, he, he must be really bad for him because you'll get it all the time. Like, oh, like like in the Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. yeah like in bloody Frankenstein. Shut up. <laughs> However, Igor uses this opportunity to rid himself of Dr. Banner. Reaching the teenager, Banner grabs him and quick, leads him quickly to the bunker. But back at the bunker, Igor detonates the device, exposing Banner to a full dose of gamma radiation. I love how Rick Jones is chilling in his car in a desert playing a harmonica, but it does feel like he should really apply himself and get a proper job. This is your first time seeing Rick Jones, isn't it? It is my first time. He's just, I'm just there going like, God, that's, you're just wasting your time. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's a, a teenager, a teenager in the 60s. That's what it was all about, man. <laughs> and should be, every teenager should waste their time. Oh yeah, true. But I mean, waste your time doing, I, I don't know. Just, but his whole thing is like, <laughs> danger signs. You're not the boss of me. <laughs> Impending nuclear explosion sign, whatever, daddy-o. I don't need to follow these rules because I'm Homer Simpson. <laughs> so this is the uh, Hulk's origin story as of 1966. So have we retconned this? Have they changed anything about it since then? Because, I mean, it's, you know, it's all right for an origin story, I guess. We but... know some new information. Ah, there we go. There it minor is. detail, minor little detail. Right before coming to do this test, Bruce Banner had just murdered his own father. This is a minor little <laughs> slight adjustment. Wow. The- wow. <laughs> so- <laughs> right. So Bruce's dad, is re- who's not mentioned much in the original stories, uh, when we get into the 80s and 90s, Peter David writes The Hulk, and he likes to apply some psychological stuff to the Hulk, to the Bruce Banner and the Hulk, and mm. he creates this idea that Banner has dissociative personality disorder, and oh. he's always had something like the Hulk inside him. And <clears throat> what what we learn is that Bruce's father was a monster who was uh, abused Bruce's mother to the whole relationship, mm. um, killed her in front of her his son Oof. when they were young. Um, was in a mental institution for years and then is released after 15 years like and was like go and live with your son again um <laughs> and yeah he lets his dad live with him very reluctantly mm. and his dad is verbally abusing him and hits him and starts all that all over again Ugh. blames him for the all sorts of stuff awful bruce goes to visit his mom's grave the anniversary of her death, his dad follows and starts harassing him, shoving him, calls him a monster. Mm. <clears throat> During the... He hits um, Bruce, knocks him down, and Bruce kicks his leg. And uh, his dad falls over, hits his head, and dies. Oof. 
Um, now, for years, Bruce remembered this as happening as basically like he doesn't remember doing it. He blacks it out, and the yeah. assumption is that Muggers killed his dad. But then he remembers that it was him. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and then he goes straight to Nevada to the test site. I'll I'll uh, I'll put my mind at ease with this bomb test. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and so the idea is there's 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 been this something inside him the whole time, and the, mm. the gamma bomb just released it. Yeah. Um, the other addition, alteration, is the green door. The green door. Sounds so the Hulk, Twin Peaks. The Hulk has died and come back so many times mm. that in a recent storyline, that instead of it being the comic being called The Incredible Hulk. It was retitled The Immortal Hulk. Ah. Um, written by a writer called Al Ewing, who did a really great run on the Hulk. It's, it's, the Immortal Hulk's a really great series. Mm. And they added some new information to explain how how he, more than anyone else, has come back from the dead so many times. Mm. The explanation is the gamma bomb detonated and it's um, it create it killed Bruce Banner. He died. Mm. Dead, then and there, straight away. Okay. But it ripped a hole, it kind of a metaphysical hole, right. to something called the below place. The <laughs> bottom layer of the multiverse. Not Even hell, I was thinking hell for a second. Below, it's, it is literally mm. stated to be beneath hell, lower than hell, wow. in the metaphysical realms. Yeah. Um, and... The gamma explosion and the gamma has this odd connection. And it, one of the other properties is that it's able to transverse and mm. do this with metaphysically, and it creates a green door between reality and the bottom layer of everything. Oh, okay. And if you're connected to gamma, if you have, if you're infused with gamma radiation and die, you go to the below place. Mm. Um, but Bruce would return very, very quickly. So no one noticed he died. Mm. And he comes back as the Hulk and has no memory of being there, his resurrection. It happens to a lot of gamma creatures over the years. So the green mm. door brings Bruce back to life and keeps doing it whenever he dies. He cannot die. Wow. So, yeah, that's a slight alteration. That's mad. Waking up in the infirmary, Banner, uh, Banner awakens... Sorry. Banner awakens <laughs> up in the infirmary, seeming uninjured. The teenager he saves introduces himself as Rick Jones and thanks for being the first person for ever caring about him. However, later, in a locked room for his safety, Banner starts to feel strange, wondering if this is the end. As Banner struggles in pain, Rick Jones watches as the mild-mannered doctor transforms into a hulking green beast. The Hulk, angered at being locked in a room, pounds against the walls to get out. Outside, the Hulk approaches some troops in a jeep and attacks them before wandering away into the desert. Realising Banner is in trouble, Rick Jones follows him. Hulk's voice made me laugh very loudly. It's much different to what I'm used to because we used to an angry voice, but this was like, Ugh. sort of a sneery voice almost. Can you give us a little bit more of a description for our listeners? It's like, <sighs> not, not necessarily an impression, but it's a sneery voice. It's more, more talkative. He doesn't talk in broken it, it, English. And... He's, he's very talk, doesn't talk in broken English. He, he doesn't sound too angry. He just sounds very displeased. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think, because anger's not a part of it yet. Yeah, yeah. Right? Not not a part. Issue of it, one, it? it's yeah. not anger. It's day. It's daylight and nighttime that, tra- that mm. triggers the transformation. 
and originally the Hulk is a lot more like uh, a troll or or <laughs> it's kind of a Mr. Hyde deal. He's not yeah. giant and green yet. He's like bigger than a re- he's what seven foot maybe yeah he's, he's seven he's, seven five maybe he's a clear foot above an average person I think at yeah least. but he talks in full sentences and he grumbles and complains and he's meant to be like Mister Hyde so yeah hmm. it is um it is weird isn't it it is a little bit weird uh, as Thunderbolt's men search for the beast Hulk hides away in the shadows away from the troops instinctively Hulk heads back to Banner's home with Rick Jones in tow. Inside, Igor, search, searching for the secret to the gamma ray formula, is shocked at the appearance of the Hulk and shoots the beast. However, the gun is no match for the Hulk, and the beast crushes the weapon in his hands like a biscuit. The Hulk then attacks... <laughs> like, like a biscuit? <laughs> like, when, when I was writing this, I was like, there is no other way to describe it. It's like a biscuit. The Hulk then attacks Igor with Rick Jones finding the top secret gamma ray documents amongst the debris. Rick Jones asks Hulk about Banner, but the Beast only has hatred for his alter ego. As Hulk gets angry, suddenly he reverts back to Dr. Banner. The next second, Ross and his men barge into the home, looking for the Hulk. As Eagle comes to, Banner and Jones realise he was unsuccessful in stealing the formula as the traitor is taken away to custody. I love how Hulk hates Banner, and also Rick just following him despite the immense danger that he could kill him at any moment yeah he follows around for many 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 issues as a sort of unofficial sidekick yeah also in this story we got uh igor who's a kgb spy who is entirely responsible for creating the hulk does he ever come back in the comics does he go to jail does he become a supervillain? what happens he's weird he's so weirdly underplayed mm. that it's only when i started i, w- I went back and reread the origin years ago for i think in our first year yeah that i remembered he existed oh yeah i completely forgot after all these years that there was a person that pressed the button on purpose and intentionally tried to blow you know bruce banner up with the bomb i completely yeah. forgot that was a part of the origin it's very downplayed in the hulk mythos he in the in the 90s he does um he's working for a, a, a kind of a a massive organization of scientists and military people called the Pantheon. Mm. And he uses those resources to track Igor down and confront him. And Igor has been driven mad, basically, by nightmares um, about the Hulk and all of that. Um, <laughs> I think he does get turned into a gamma monster at some point in the, in the, in the future as well. I was about um, to say, that 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 definitely be on the cards at some point. Everyone in the Hulk story becomes a gamma monster. Everyone, it's the yeah. go-to. It's the go-to mo of this story. I don't line. think there's a single supporting cast member that hasn't, <laughs> like hell. a ma- major recurring one. It's all mm. maybe not the Pantheon people, but yeah. As Bruce recovers from his injuries, Betty Ross offers her help before leaving. Now they're alone. Rick asks Banner how it felt to be the Hulk, but Banner is more preoccupied as to when he might change into the uncontrollable creature again. Meanwhile, in his cell. Igor uses a radio device hidden in his thumbnail to contact someone behind the Iron Curtain called the Gorgon. As the communication makes its way through person to person, Igor's message reaches the locked cell of Gorgon, a deformed dwarf who is angered to find that another creature of radiation exists in America. Vowing to destroy the Hulk, the Gorgon is launched from a submarine into US onto US soil. 
I want to know how the thumbnail radio transmitter works and how you type a message with it. Or is it you say something into what, it? What's, what's he, what's he do? He, he, does he say something into it? He just, he said he uses a transmitter. You know, I'll use this, you know, I don't know if he speaks into it or something. Or yeah, type. I think he speaks into it. A radio, oh, he speaks, yeah. a radio transmitter. Yeah. God, that must, that must be awful. <laughs> I think under your thumbnail, under, that's a form of torture, putting things under the thumbnail. <laughs> that's awful. So Gorgon sounds like a typical Stanley villain name. Uh, we've never dealt with him before, have we? We have. Oh, yeah. when? When? So uh, Yuri Topot Topolov mm. in the comic books is not called the Gorgon. He's called the Gargoyle. Ah, uh, right. And so, we, yeah. we dealt with the Gargoyle in the 90s cartoon series. There's a... Mm. The deformed miniature little person, mm. a recurring villain, and he's called the Gargoyle. Mm. In this, they changed the name to the Gorgon. And mm. I, 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 I assume, because in the Thor segments, yeah. there's another villain called the Grey Gargoyle, uh, I assume maybe they didn't want any confusion or whatever. And the yeah. Grey Gargoyle needs the name Gargoyle because... He turns people to stone, and he look. He's made of stone, hmm. so he needs that. the The other guy doesn't really. Gorgon, the gargoyle, don't make much difference. Hmm. Okay, okay, that's a bit of a weird change, but I kind of get it. While driving through the base, Banner starts transforming into the Hulk, crashing the jeep that Rickett him are driving in. However, Hulk is determined to find Betty, while Gorgon watches on nearby. Betty doesn't believe there is a Hulk and faints at the sight of the green beast when he approaches her. Rick tells Hulk to let go of Betty, but they are suddenly pounced on by Gorgon, armed with a gun, one that shoots a will-destroying pellet of the Gorgon's design. Gorgon shoots both Hulk and Rick, and they become his slaves. I thought Gorgon was going to punch Hulk in the face because he's like a creature, but instead he just has a mind-control gun. Feels like he a bit of a... Yeah, it's because he doesn't have any strength or powers. He's just a smart guy. Oh, he's just smart. Like, that's his power, then. He's just intelligent. Okay. I don't even think it's a power. He's just a smart, deformed just sp- person. The fact he looks a bit weird is just a, just an afterthought, really. <laughs> yeah, it's radiation that's made him look yeah. weird, but he didn't get any powers. Yeah, that's, that's what, a, what a raw deal. So is the Hulk actually susceptible to my, uh, being mind-controlled, then, like this? In general, no. It's it's, mm. it's generally accepted that he can't be mind controlled. Mm. There's, a, there's a there's a a very small number of times it's happened, but it's pretty well est- established that like um, tech and chemicals and things like that don't work on the Hulk. Mm. Um, he's a singular entity. There's nothing like the Hulk in him. Well, there's all this other stuff like there's other Hulks, but yeah. in general, there's nothing like the Hulk. He's not a mutant. He's not. Um, and as Guardian, he's not an alien, he's not, you know, um, and he's now mystic and immortal and can't die. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and psychics, uh, telepaths and stuff like that, they they find his mind to be too strong and uh, too terrifying and chaotic to control. Um, you remember from our World War Hulk episode where he, he breaks Doctor Strange's hands while Doctor Strange is in his astral form, oh. rips him... From the yeah. astral plane into the physical plane, just because he's the Hulk. <laughs> yeah, very powerful. Later, Betty recovers from her encounter with the Hulk, with her father telling her that the Hulk will be found. Elsewhere, Gorgon takes Hulk and Rick into a suborbital craft back to his base, but Hulk changes back into Banner during the journey. Surprisingly, this realisation causes Gorgon to break down in tears, revealing his desire to be normal again but Banner decides to cure Gorgon of his affliction, turning him into a normal human. 
As the troops storm the lab, Gorgon helps Banner and Rick escape before sacrificing his life to explode the base. So that's a nice, nice of him to sacrifice himself for Banner. But if I was the Gorgon, I became human again. I'd at least want to have a weekend of fun first. <laughs> ah, human again. I'm you know, going to take advantage of this. I'm not, oh, Let me but, hit Vegas, then I'll come back and sacrifice myself. Sacrifice myself for the timing is right. Uh, as we know, no one dies in comic books. That's stupid. Uh, does, the Gorg- <laughs> does the Gorgon ever come back? He stays dead for 40 years. That's wow. pretty solid. In, 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 the, in the comic book world, that's pretty solid. Yeah, that's good. Um, in the 70s, we meet his son, who calls himself the Gremlin. Ah, uh-huh. um, okay. Steve Angelhart created the character and said, I thought we should bring... I thought we should do something with the Gorgon, and I thought he's <laughs> Russian, and he's got this son, oh. Gorg... Uh, Gremlin. Gargoyle, yeah. Kremlin. Kremlin, Kremlin. Kremlin. Oh, that works. Um, that works. He inherits his, his dad's like kind of grotesque appearance and um incredible intelligence and he's born dis he's yeah, he's born disfigured. Mm. Um and he um he tries to he attacks this Arctic base that the Hulk is at and he has a um talking triceratops dog. He has right. a that came yeah. out of nowhere. That came he out of nowhere. A, he has a pet dog called just Droog, which is an intelligent, talking, small triceratops. Um, he, that he invented. There's that. Okay. Um, and and then later he becomes the second Titanium Man. Titanium oh, Man is yeah. a yeah a Soviet enemy of Iron Man who wears a Soviet version of the Iron Man armor called titanium man he's the second guy to don that power armor and um yeah fights fights the x-men the avengers and stuff um he gets his ass kicked by tony stark during armor wars because he's wearing stark tech copied armor (laughs) and then in 2007 it's revealed the gargoyle did not die (laughs) <laughs> the KGB had him in cryogenic suspended animation there's this fun thing where they've got basically a whole bunch of very dangerous mistakes made by during the cold war mm. like these guys might have gone too far <laughs> and they they're all kept in suspended animation and then they all accidentally wake up to plague America again it's quite a short and operatic theme there wasn't it quite 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 nice wasn't it i had this particular tape hmm. or one of these tapes as a kid and we either rented it a lot or maybe we i don't think i ever owned Maybe I owned this one, and I, so I. This song is burning to my. I don't remember all the words, but. Prince of Atlantis is the king of the deep. I had yeah, yeah. He can fly it. I yeah, burning to my mind this one. Absolutely, yeah, good. Anyway, this is a uh, final episode. This is Namor, peril in the surface world. In Atlantis, Prince Namor the first lies ill. As Lady Dormer watches over the sleeping Namor, she falls asleep, with Namor waking and swimming to the surface world. In a dazed and weakened state, Namor is compelled to find something before collapsing on the beach. Awoken by a policeman, Namor can't remember his identity 
and fights off the officer before escaping into the air. Lady Dormo didn't she didn't pop up in in Wakanda Forever, did she? I don't I don't recognise that name. Oh, I'm not sure. I don't think so. No, Maybe no, who is she? This is Namor's cousin that he tries to shag. Yay! Um, why? Why uh, would you want? To, why would you want to shag your cousin? Because it's so attractive. <laughs> the aristocracy, even yeah. underwater, they're weird nonces. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> you can't drown it out of them, apparently. Ooh, uh, boy. Ooh, yeah, boy. she's she's a member. Uh, she so she's the daughter of Wartham, uh, the granddaughter of Wakar. Um, she is royalty. Um, there's a different Atlantean settlement of Thakor, um, which is off the coast of the Antarctic and ruled by her uh, her other cousin, Emperor Thakor. Or maybe that's her brother. I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, and she's a distant cousin of Namor. Um, and she, I think she's due to inherit the throne until Namor is born. Um, so to begin with, there's a lot of rivalry and bitterness. Um, well, I say, to be fair, that's updated history. In the 1930s and 40s stories, she's like his love interest slash sidekick. Um, yeah, um, which is, I think, where this story is taken from. Yeah. Um, and then she's so in the 30s and 40s, it's kind of uh, a Lois Lane Superman situation mm. sidekick, love interest. She's trying to win his affection. Um, <clears throat> he keeps her at a bit of a distance. They do eventually then marry in the 1970s. They get married. Hooray! And then she's murdered, but then she comes back to life. Oh, good. It's good good that happens to a cousin. (laughs) At the police station, the captain realises the officer's account of Namor has to be the Submariner before putting out an APB for Namor. Still confused about what he seeks, Namor traverses the city to find whatever it may be. As a fancy apartment... A mysterious woman known as Mrs. B commands her two henchmen to find Namor. On top of a building, Namor is approached by a police helicopter and hides within. Hearing the the, uh, police, APB, the henchmen, head to the building. You'd think he'd get a coat or something to blend in, wouldn't you? (laughs) He's running around in his pants. And his little winged feet. Little green pants. Little green pants. Yeah, I would have sorted that out. Has Namor actually ever tried to blend in on the surface world, though? Because this just seems like such a rookie mistake. Well, uh, sort of. So, like Captain America, uh, Namor stopped being published. Uh, he was published in the 30s and 40s, and then stopped in the middle of the 40s. Briefly returned in the 50s for a failed reboot, but generally, mm. nothing from the 40s to the 60s. And so Marvel came up with a, an explanation for this. Like with Captain America, they said he's been asleep in suspended animation in the ice, frozen in the Arctic. <laughs> for Namor, um, they basically said, he, well, he's kind of lives forever. Not lived forever, but he's very, very, very long-lived. Hmm. So he hasn't aged, really. But there's some unnamed tragedy, an event happened to him that was horrible, and he washes up on a beach somewhere in America with amnesia Hmm. and then he spends years out of the water um and he's a homeless derelict with amnesia and mental problems Hmm. um getting weaker and weaker because he not because he thinks he's a person sorry he thinks he's a human human. so he's not going in the water yeah and he grows this horrible great big beard and his hair grows long and he wears he wears a you know dirty overcoat he's a homeless guy um 
and he obscures his very distinctive features. And he remains a derelict until Johnny Storm, <laughs> the Human Torch, not the real Human Torch, the other Human Torch, um, happens to find him in a flop house and um, doesn't know who he is, but sees he's got super strength. Um, feels bad for this guy with amnesia, tries to help him get back on his feet, and he's like, hey, you know, you'll look a lot more presentable and maybe get a job if you um, have a shave. And so he burns the, the facial hair off <laughs> with his heat powers yeah, and then goes, you're Prince Namor from the war. And then he picks him up, flies him to the sea, and drops him in it. <laughs> okay, okay. And that seems callous, but immediately helps. And he's like, oh... I'm the Prince of Atlantis. So that's when he was wearing clothes on the land. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. I thought I was hoping he'd have a much better experience of clothes on the land, but geez, that was he'd, horrifying. He does a little bit later. Yeah. Does he get a snazzy little overcoat? Snazzy little. He gets coat, a cool black, all black business suit. Looks awesome. Oh man, he was so suit that. As the police get a cordon around the building, the henchmen sneak into the building. Calling the police captain, the henchmen feed him a full sighting of the Submariner, sending the police in another direction. Sensing danger, Namor is cornered by the henchmen. Advancing on Namor, the henchmen are no match for the Submariner's strength. The Submariner escapes, and the henchmen report to a very displeased Mrs. B. Despite their failures, Mrs. B gives the henchmen another chance. Meanwhile, the police captain realises the, mar the Mariner sighting was a lie. So if I was uh, told to take down a mysterious man called the Submariner, who's strong, As you often are. As you often are. I take some tranquilizer darts and a net and not just use my fists. Where are you getting the tranquilizer darts from? I, the, they're henchmen. They probably have access to something. They've the zoo's closed on a Sunday, Will. This net, the story doesn't take place on a Sunday. It's never explained. <laughs> How dare you? Come on. You know what I'm getting at. So... We can see that Prince Namor's pretty strong and he can fly. Uh, but what are his powers? I mean, obviously he can breathe underwater. What else does he got going on? Bill Everett, the, the writer-artist that created uh, Prince Namor, describes the character as an ultra-man of the deep who lives <laughs> on land and in the sea, flies in the air, and has the strength of a thousand men. Ooh. Um, a thousand men. He, uh, out out of water, uh, Namor has been seen lifting several thousand tons without effort. Wow. He can hold his own against the Hulk. Um, and Thing and Luke Cage, he, he, he kick a lot, he can get a lot of asses. Um, underwater, he's even stronger. Um, he can beat Hercules and he can beat Thor underwater and all sorts of things. He's incredibly strong underwater. As well as the peak of his of his strength. Um, <clears throat> whereas most Atlanteans can swim at speeds of like 60 miles an hour, Namor can swim at speeds of 345 miles an hour. Um, he's incredibly fast. Hmm. Uh, due to the nature of the pressure underwater, he can withstand tremendous impact forces. Yep. So he's, he's, he's bulletproof and he can fall from great heights. Uh, none, none of these things Blows from very powerful superhumans Don't hurt him really um, He absorbed a full blast Of cosmic power from the silver surfer 
uh, and did not sustain like terrible injuries. It hurt, wow. but he wasn't dead. That's he has a telepathic rapport with uh, a lot of marine life, and he can communicate. And mm, I, I don't think it's control them, but he can persuade them to do what he, he wants. Uh, yeah, there's, there's more consent involved. <laughs> That's good. Well, is it consent when he's their king, their monarch? Probably not. Uh, Power discrepancy. Yeah, okay, um, that makes sense. Yeah. He in the sky, he can fly faster than military aircraft. Wow. And has even demonstrated the ability to reach escape velocity. <laughs> <laughs> wow. He can go oh, in space, can he? <laughs> well, he can't breathe up there, but he can escape the atmosphere. Just did it for a laugh one day. He can have a helmet on and the tight sci-fi helmet. Oh, okay, 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 I get it. Sorry, yeah. Uh, oh, and he possesses the mystic trident of Poseidon, which allows Ooh. him to literally control all of the sea. It is a weapon akin to Mjolnir. If he wished, he could wipe out almost all of humanity with tsunami waves <laughs> using this trident. Uh, do not mess with Namor. He yeah. is a scary dude, and he does not like people. <laughs> He's um, not a people person. Nope. Um, when he was first introduced, or at some point in the 40s, there was a thing of, ah, he possesses all the different powers of, like... like Electricity from the electric eel and sonar <laughs> from a dolphin, but then they, they got rid of all that. Yeah, that would have been a bit, bit, bit mad. At the police captain's office, the captain goes over the paperwork he has on the submariner, realizing that at some point, Neymar will head back to the sea, ordering patrols to the ocean. At the docks, some workers spot Neymar, aiming to take him in for a reward, but they are no match for Neymar's strength, despite his uh, weakened condition. The, the police arrive and open fire, but Namor flies to safety. Namor still is compelled to find what he seeks, but without water, he grows weaker and weaker. I like that the police have reports on Namor, but it's they haven't put it in some kind of, like, quack file or something silly. Where it's been like, yeah, these are stupid cases. It's like, no, this is an official case. We have knowledge of an undersea prince or something. We've got to deal with this. We've got to deal with this, but we'll keep we'll keep the things on file. So do all Atlanteans grow this weak when they're away for water for so long? Weaker. Oh. Uh, regular Atlanteans can't breathe oxygen, so that's a problem. Yeah. Um, uh, Namor can breathe both oxygen yeah. and water. Um, so if they're away from uh, water, they die. Namor, Namor loses his str- like, will begin to lose his strength and powers, but he won't die. And over the years, it's been, kind of been this thing of him becoming weak that's downplayed mass- very considerably. Like, mm. I think I think extreme heat, and if you expunge your moisture from the air and dry him out and all that kind of stuff, I think you'd really hurt him. But, like, he was fighting Nazis and tanks during the war on land, and mm. he fights alongside the Avengers against criminals and supervillains on land. He, he, he doesn't have to keep nipping back to take a dip in a swimming pool to recover. <laughs> he, it, 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 it's, it's a prolonged period of time before he'll become weak. Oh, I was about to say, like, like surely he could just plop into the river nearby or something, or an outlet. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, was, yeah. I was thinking that while watching this, thinking you're an idiot. An estuary, <laughs> an estuary, a convenient estuary. There's always an estuary or a fjord. <laughs> anyway, I teed you up for that one. Yeah, you did. Yeah, thank you very much. Yes, again, the henchmen report their failure to Mrs. B. Not only that, but the police have widened their dragnet, making their job harder. 
At the same time, both the police captain and Mrs. B realize that Namor will seek out the aquarium in a seawater tank. Why? Namor's... <laughs> I like you just that. Just go back to the sea. Go back to the sea. Yeah. It's in a seawater tank. Namor's strength begins to return, but he is then surrounded by police who fish him out with a large net. Spy... Come, here, come here, you! Come here, come here! <laughs> I would love it if it's like one of those. Namor. If it's one of those nets you used to get a dead goldfish out of a tank, mm-hmm. but a bigger one. Spying on the police, the henchman realizes there might still be a way to retrieve Namor from police custody. I like the. Uh... I like the fact the police actually bothered to bring a net. Uh, like, the henchmen didn't. Like, they're clearly more organised than the henchmen. I would have brought a net with me if I needed to capture someone like they this. They think it's because, yeah, the, the police, uh, as a job, attracts people that are much more forward planning and coordinating. Yeah, Whereas that... henchmen, devil may care attitude to life. Yeah, God, they, they deserve the worst. <laughs> Awakening in his cell, Namor is greeted by a police officer who tells him that the henchmen have paid for his bail. Immediately suspicious of the henchmen, Namor eventually relents and follows them to Mrs. B's home. Inside Mrs. B's home, Namor doesn't recognise his own name when greeted by the mysterious lady. Mrs. B tells Namor about how, a long time ago, depth charges from an Arctic tanker caused seismic, seismic damage to the city of Atlantis below. The Atlantean princess swims to the ship above to speak to the sailors, instead of a father's suggestion to attack in force. Arriving on the ship... The princess is taken to the captain, but has trouble breathing before fainting. The princess is revived by water from the captain. They fall in love and wed, but the princess's absence prompts the Atlanteans to take the ship by force. A bloody firefight ensues, and the captain is murdered in front of the princess. Heartbroken, the princess swims back to Atlantis, where she has the captain's child, which grows up to become Namor. That young captain was Mrs. B's son. Mrs. B is Namor's grandmother. You would have thought she would have told Atlantis that everything is fine and she found love in that story. Like, the princess, because they, they thought that she's been captured. Like, she should have just gone, I'm, I love you. I'm just going to go back home to tell everything's all right. And I found a husband. Maybe I'll invite them to the, you know, maybe invite them to a wedding party <laughs> at some point. It's a bit mad. Love's like that, I'm afraid. What do you maybe, think? Yeah, maybe, the, yeah. Maybe, well, yeah. So... This is Namor's origins in 1966. Have they changed anything since then? I mean, I know they did changes in Wakanda Forever, which were a bit odd, but... Yeah, yeah. I mean, his dad isn't dead. That's a big change. No dead dad. Um, no, mm. but they don't ever... Like, there's this. they do this really heart, heartbreaking thing of they encounter each other mm. during a time when Namor has amnesia <laughs> and his dad doesn't know who namor is so because uh, namor's got the beard on and everything yeah so they kind of walk past and they don't so that's the sort not, not i can't i forget exactly when it happens but there is some amnesia involved mm. um and then i think the next time they actually meet each other uh captain leonard is sacrificed himself immediately to save namor from bad guys and dies Oof. in his arms and stuff um yeah, the big change is that Namor is a mutant. As in X-Men mutant? Yeah. Oh, yeah. my Lord. So being a hybrid of, like, human and Atlantean ancestry, he also has the 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 X gene, um, which is why he has completely different powers to 
He like no Atlantean has his abilities, and no human has his abilities. So yeah, he has he's flying feet. So yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Um, wow. They, they downplayed that for two decades, and they were like, ah, he's a hybrid. We're not going to call him a mutant. He's yeah. a hybrid. Yeah. And then in the nineties, the X Men are hugely popular. So they're like, <laughs> we're going to play this up. And his his comic has a big header on it that says yeah. Marvel's first and mightiest mutant. Uh, very so oh even before uh, apocalypse was he no in terms of publication history in terms of publication right yeah. i get you yeah, yeah yeah so in in terms of like actual timeline of course there's a apocalypse and there's i think wolverine's older than him but mm. in terms and they, they put that on there and he is often informally kind of described as the first mutant um and then years later he will spend a lot of time he, he joins the x-men amazing um, which is uh, an interesting thing um, and so yeah, there's there's a couple of little changes there. Hmm. It, there's one telling because some of these stories of the golden age, they're not canon. Wasn't a thing in the golden age of comics. Yeah, it really wasn't. There is a story where instead of getting married on the boat, uh, Namor's mom and dad go to Atlantis and get married there in like a secret ceremony, hmm. and then the Atlanteans turn on them. And kill him, and he floats to the surface, but doesn't quite die, and all that kind of stuff. Wow. So that, that, none of that matters. You don't need to know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mrs. B offers Namor his rightful inheritance on the surface, but Namor, with his memories flooding back, tells her that he already has wealth in Atlantis and the love of Lady Dormer. Not wanting to stand in the way of Namor's life, Mrs. B orders her henchmen to use her yacht to escort Namor back to the sea, past the police blockade. Before Namor dives back to Atlantis. He te- tells a tearful Mrs. B that he is proud of his surface heritage. Streaking back home, Dormit is greeted by Namor, who will stay here forever. That was a genuinely sweet ending, I thought. That was a ge- yeah, that it's was- all about drama and not about like a big fight, really. Yeah, I like that. It's just it's it's the person discovering themselves after you know some struggle. What's his voice like? Can you do can you do Namor's voice in this? Ah. It's very deep and commanding, isn't and it? And regal as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's like that. I, I can't do it. Prince Namor. <laughs> so, does he ever choose to live on the surface instead of Atlantis? Because I can't imagine that ever happening. I, you know. Well, we've talked about him being this anti-hero, right? So yeah. when he first, when he kind of first shows up, uh, a bunch of the times that he first shows up in the Golden Age, he is literally trying to destroy New York with a tidal wave and kill everyone. Hmm. And he gets into fight with the Human Torch. They like to do that thing of water versus fire. That's a good tactic. And then when he reemerges in the Silver Age with the Fantastic Four, he kidnaps Sue Storm and he's like, "I'm going to drown the world <laughs> unless you give them to my demands." <laughs> but he also fought with Captain America during World War Two, saves people and helps Cap, and joins the Avengers. But he has a long association as being a colleague of dr doom it's this ah, thing of two okay. two he prince namor really respects like all the rules of diplomacy and and uh, royalty mm. dr doom is an is a is a, a king he's an emperor oh yeah, yeah. yeah. just as namor is so there's a there's a connection they, they have to have good relations that's how mm. that's how nations survive yeah um so there's there's often a plan of I I rule the I rule the waters. You rule the land. Don't care about mm. anything else. We can mm. work together if we need to. So he flip flops between trying to destroy everything and then joining the Avengers. 
At the end of the 80s, some rebel factions have tried to usurp the throne from Namor and Atlantis, and he's been very badly beaten and injured and left for dead. Um, and in fact, anyone looking at him would have gone, he's definitely dead. But Namor's mutant, unique physiology lets him survive things like that, and no one knows. And he's only yeah, another power. just... <laughs> no, it's not another power. It's just his level of resilience and his... Ah, uh, right, 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 right. Like, he, to all intents and purposes, he looks like he's dead. Um, and anyone else would have been, but he's Namor. So he's found half mad and half dead out of the water by father-daughter oceanographers Caleb and Carrie Alexander, who nurse him back to health and make some discoveries about Namor's condition. And these are uh, the writer John Byrne coming along to go, I want to change a whole bunch of stuff about Namor, and I'm going to do it with like new information slash retcon. Hmm. But it's good. It's, it, it basically it explains the years of switching between attacking the surface world and teaming and being a good guy. The Alexanders theorize that Namor's um, propensity towards rage is due to his half-human, half-Atlantean blood chemistry. That spending too much time underwater or too much time on land deprives his body of what it needs and drives him to madness, rage-fueled madness, due to a chemical imbalance in his head. So, spending all his time underwater has not been good for him. Spending all his time on land is not good for him. So they develop this like mm. monitor that warns him and goes, hey, hey man, you need to get underwater for a bit, or you're going to start killing people, and vice versa. Hey, you've been underwater for too long a time, time to go up and get a McDonald's or something. Um, <laughs> and so he can regulate his... Literally, his insanity is regulated mm. for the first time ever. And he has to, because of this, because he needs to spend equal parts of time on the surface world as he does underwater, he establishes a base of operations in America. Um, he buys a company. He, uh, he, he, he uses um, sunken treasure. Mm. He gets a whole bunch of sunken treasure, like funnels it through uh, the, the Alexander's, they become his proxies, establishes an absolute fortune of, of multiple millions, buys an international company, renames it Oracle Inc., and is like, Namor is a businessman now. And he sometimes <laughs> wears this really cool suit. And he also reclaims the throne of Atlantis, and he's trying to do both. Um, and so he battles, like he's fully battling supervillains on land, which he'd never really done before. Um, supervillains have got nothing to do with Atlantis. Mm. Um, and he's also fighting, like, takeovers from evil corporations. <laughs> and then he uses Oracle Inc. to fund Luke Cage and Iron Fist's new Heroes for Hire super team. And oh, so, wow. It's a good period of time. Uh, John Byrne writing in the 19. 19- Eight nineteen nineties Namor is is a mm. lot of fun, um, and that got kind of forgotten. And since then, he's ping pong between madness and heroism. There we have it. Thank you, Will, for guiding us through nineteen sixty six and episodes of Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, Incredible Hulk, and Namor, the Prince of Atlantis as a Mariner. Um, your first exposure to Prince Namor before we got into trivia, like what? What did you overall thoughts like Namor? Because it's the first time you've ever seen him. Well, I mean, it's a very different from the uh, from from the MCU version. 
Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I like him more than Aquaman, definitely. <laughs> there's, there's more to it, I think, with, uh, with Nathan. Yeah, tragedy. Yeah, yeah tragedy, um, yeah. Your favourite pieces of trivia that you have learned from today's episode? Well, I have to say, I love learning more about Namor's power and the fact he could kill everybody if he, on the surface world if he <laughs> wanted, and that's mad. Uh, I also loved uh, the Green Door with Incredible Hulk. That's oh, yeah. just insane. But I think the, the thing I really loved is that Iron Man tried to kill Ultimo by re- dumping him in a volcano, and it just doesn't work. <laughs> it just that, that that that's great. And your final thoughts on 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 this the Marvel superheroes show. Yeah, I mean, it's a product of its time, let's face it. But I love the way they literally ripped it straight from the pages of Marvel and turned it into something you could watch. I mean, sure, it's a bit rough in places, but I think that's part of the charm, to be honest. The voice acting is cheesy, but a good kind of cheesy. And the soundtrack and theme tunes felt like a good amount of effort had gone in. They're my favourite parts of it, I think, is the, yeah, the soundtrack definitely. and stuff. I do love the look of the Xerox scene kind of style. I think it's very retro mm. and has a kind of um, cool retro charm to it. Definitely. Uh, next episode, Will, we're going back to the MCU yes. as we crash towards Endgame with a very important piece of the puzzle. Ant-Man and the Wasp is our next episode. Thank you, Will, for 100 episodes. Thank, Thank you, you to our... Thank you to our listeners for tuning in for 100 episodes. We hope you'll continue and you can support us on patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel or you can support us by sharing the podcast with friends who love Marvel comics and movies. You can support us by sharing our tweets on Marvel at verse marvel versus lost that one twitter at marvel versus where you can share some stuff um those are great ways that you can support the show we'll see you next time marvel versus marvel was researched written and performed by rob holden and will preston the show is produced by will preston and our theme song was composed and performed by dan walsh head to patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel for awesome bonus content